When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of History Hack. I'm with Alina today who is going to introduce our special guest for you all. If you all have no idea who our guest is, I really think either you've been living under a rock, living under a rock or literally living under a rock because our special guest is the one and only Mary Beard. First of all, I'm trying to really keep myself calm and not act like an excited fangirl. But if you don't know some of her works, my God, go and look. She's written so many amazing books. And actually, I've got the honour of being able to read her newest book, which is what we're going to be talking about today. And I've got to say, yet, I have not read one sentence that is boring. This book is exciting. It's interesting. And it's something actually I learned quite a new things from it. So we're going to be talking about Empress today. Welcome, Mary. I'm so excited. Hello. It's exciting for me to be here. So great. I'm trying not to fangirl so badly, but it's okay. I'm going to compose myself very much so. But you've written a book where pretty much it's been talked about. Emperors have been talked about. They've been talked about in in very many different types of books, but I don't think there is truly a book that talks about emperors themselves. And this is what you've written. Yeah, I I think that's right. And it's what what I'm trying not to do is make it a series of biographies. You know, so it's not... You know, Caligula, followed by Claudius. It's about how emperors, as a category of ruler, how they worked. You know, what did they do all day? Um, how did they travel? Who did they sleep with? And the, the, the basic premise is that, yeah, of course, they were different in some ways, one from another. But they were probably more similar to each other than they were different. You know? So let's see. What, let's see if we can see them better if we put them together rather than keep them apart. Yeah, we're really looking forward to diving into this with you, Mary. So if we um, get started on the questions, let's kind of dig in a little bit into the Republic. So how would you kind of, in general terms, I guess, describe some of the key differences between in the Roman Empire, between Rome as a Republic and the Roman Empire with an emperor? Yeah, well, there's some basic ones, which is the Republic, the Roman Republic, which preceded 
the period of one man rule was a sort of democracy. Now, you have to kind of put the emphasis on sort of because the votes of the rich were worth more than the votes of the poor, etc., etc. But what was crucial was that no one held power, political power, for very long. It's basically a year at a time. And no one held political power alone. Now, that's what changes uh, with the empire, because under the emperors, one man held power alone. Sometimes there were two of them. We tend to forget that there were periods of shared rule. Um, And they held it for life. Now, there, there is a kind of counterintuitive thing that you've got to grasp here, I think, which is that it was under the Republic with its sort of democracy of elected officials, short-term power sharing. It was under the Republic that Rome acquired its empire in a territorial sense, that it conquered most of the territory that it was ever going to have from Spain you know, eastwards to Turkey and beyond. And there were some conquests later, but essentially it was this power-sharing democracy that conquered what we now call as the Roman world. And in a funny way, it was that empire that the people of the Republic acquired that destroyed the democracy because uh, they'd bitten off more than they can chew in a way, and that it proved impossible to retain and administer the vast extent now of the Roman Empire on the old system of shared rule, temporary rule. And so um, in the end, after some boss shots, um, what, what happened was that they, that the empire in a sense, demanded some form of autocracy to run it. And so, I mean, I try to sum that up in the phrase that the empire created the emperors. It wasn't that the emperors created the empire. So you've got two things going on. You've got a change from shared rule to one-man rule, shared rule with with an elected enemy. But you also have the emperor being the creation of the empire rather than the other way around. And that is counterintuitive. You kind of expect that that it was the emperors who got Rome its empire. Well, it wasn't. So I've written these questions in a way, so we kind of tell a story at the same time of telling the story of your book and what you've written about and everything else. And I wanted to give our listeners a bit of background information because you do that, actually. You do that in, in your first chapter, which I think is fantastic. And I just got absorbed into it. I came to your book in probably a day and a half. That's how intently I read your book. By the way, my dad, incredibly jealous of that. But... From this, before we get to Augustus, because Augustus becomes the first emperor, we are going to talk about him. Are there any other examples at this point of paragraphs within the Republic? There's a lot. And throughout the first century BC, you have from time to time, big men who've actually partly become even bigger because of the empire, because the empire gives a lot of riches, but not evenly spread. Um, So you have people taking one man rule for short for a short period. Um, the classic example is Sulla in the early first century BC, a very nasty piece of work, but becomes dictator um, and initiates a kind of conservative um, 
political reform. Um, another is Pompey, Caesar's great rival in the end, who was granted vast powers beyond anything that the power-sharing democracy imagined he should be granted to do things like clear the seas of pirates. And at one point, he was consul on his own. Now, there was always two consuls in Rome. We kind of often think, oh, so he was consul on his own. He was just one consul. But that was absolutely at odds with the idea that power was always shared. And on the cusp between those guys and Augustus, well, of course, you've got Julius Caesar, who some people count as the first emperor rather than Augustus, even though he didn't call himself emperor. And other people see as the kind of last gasp of these prequels to autocracy that you find in Sulla and uh, Pompey. And he was, of course, assassinated very shortly after he'd been declared dictator forever and had you know, done some of the things that later emperors were to do, you know. His head went on the coinage that hadn't happened before in the city of Rome. He starts to build uh, in a kind of imperial way and he takes over elections so that the, the, the democratic element of elections that you saw before, that's effectively it's on its way out with Julius Caesar. And that continues under the emperors. And the secret is there's a there's great decade of civil war between the assassination of Caesar and the uh, the eventual victory of Augustus. But you can join Caesar up to Augustus in all kinds of ways. And Augustus, Octavian as he was first known, is actually the great nephew of Julius Caesar. So there's a kind of hereditary principle in that. Um, and Julius Caesar makes him his son by adopting him, as was not uncommon in Rome, in his will. He didn't adopt him during his lifetime, but he adopted him in his will. And that leads us perfectly on to talking about Octavian or Augustus a little bit more. And Mary, can you tell us um, a little bit, people listening may be familiar with how Octavian came to power, but could you remind us and also why he chose the name Augustus Caesar when he became the first emperor? Yeah, good questions. Augustus was known first as Octavian or Octavius. He first appears in any major way after the assassination of Caesar, because he's adopted in Caesar's will and is his great nephew. And to start with, um, he's in alliance with Caesar's other great supporter, Mark Antony. And after the assassination in 44, they pretty soon turn their swords on the assassins, and Mark Antony and Octavian are victorious against Brutus and Cassius and co. Then, of course, it gets complicated because then Mark Antony and Octavian go for each other. Right? They, they've been in unity against Brutus and Cassius and the assassins, but then they go for each other's throats. And eventually in 31 BC, Octavian defeats the fleet of Mark Antony, who's by then in alliance with Cleopatra off the coast of Greece and becomes effectively sole ruler. I mean, the oddity here, that makes it all sound quite simple. The, the really peculiar thing about all this is that Octavian in the Civil War was absolutely ghastly. He was a you know, horrible young thug. And he, for example, he raises his own private militia to come and um, join in with the pursuit of Brutus and Cassius. And the stories told about him, you know, like dragging out you know, 
pulling out the eyes of one of his enemies with his bare hands, you know, are really at the far edge of nasty. And he, along with Mark Antony, actually, before they really totally fallen out, um, he was responsible jointly for an awful pogrom of, you know, judicial murder in the city of Rome. Uh, and he ends up winning. Now, the unsolved puzzle about Octavian Augustus is how he goes from that horribly disreputable start to becoming a revered statesman, father of his country, yeah, Mr. Goody Emperor for all time. And no one has explained that. I mean, there are other examples of world history of that happening, but Augustus is about the most blatant one. And it's partly signalled, however, by his name change. I mean, I think it was quite a good idea to change his name. And he chooses the name Augustus, uh, which is actually a completely made up name. And it has a kind of certain sort of North Korean ring to it. because It just meant revered one. And that is the brand with which he stamps his rule. And, but that transition, you can tell the narrative, but the transition of character and PR is very puzzling. Doesn't he choose the name Romulus at first? Was it Remus? He, he canvasses other names, but he rejects Romulus. A good idea, because Romulus was, of course, a king. And one of the things that Augustus wanted to say in this kind of tightrope of one-man rule is, I'm not a king. Romans once had had kings back in the very earliest days before the power-sharing democracy. But they had gone to the bad and they threw out the last one, Tarquin the Proud, and they said, never again, guys. So Augustus is saying, not a king. OK, so we've got a few texts that have been written by various Roman leaders, but the most well-known is the Res Gestae, which is by our very own Augustus. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about what, it, first of all, what is this text? Who has used this text? I think that's also quite important. And um, what is so important about the text itself? Well, towards the end of his life, he built himself a tomb very early in his reign. So it was already towards the end of his life when he was you know, seeing he was soon going to occupy the tomb. He writes a brief account called The Raised Gestae, things that were done. And I can't tend to call it what I did. It's very first person, what I did. And this text was not written for transmission in manuscript or by copying or whatever. It was to be erected on bronze pillars that would stand outside the tomb at the doorway. And it's listing Augustus's achievements. Now, those bronze pillars have long been melted down. You know, they probably turned into weaponry in the Middle Ages. But there clearly was some kind of copying going on because the texts, the text of this document that we have actually comes from a version of it, which was inscribed all over the walls of a temple in Ankara, right? So somebody uh, had put up in Ankara, part then of the Roman Empire, uh, Augustus's, as it were, record of achievement and put it up in a temple in Turkey, where it still is, actually, where you can see it. And what it does is kind of, it's partly retrospective, terribly boastful, um, and it smooths over any awkwardnesses about private armies and that kind of thing. But it 
lists the things that Augustus did. He restored 82 temples in you know, this year. He conquered X and Y. He gave so many gladiatorial shows and whatever. So it's partly looking back to his lifetime of achievement. But it, in a way, it becomes a blueprint, I think, for the future, that what Augustus is doing is saying, this is how I was emperor. This is what it was. Yeah, successors look at this. And he identifies, you know, aspects of being an emperor that become absolutely central for the rest of Roman time, always, but certainly for the next few centuries. You know, emperors build things. Emperors conquer things. Emperors are generous, right? They give money to the people. They give shows to the people. So in a way, it's a bit of a job description of what it is to be an emperor. It misses out some things. He doesn't, he doesn't exactly say, look, I, I stopped popular elections, right? He took them over. And it doesn't say that he rather sensibly nationalised the army so that no one ever again could do exactly what he did, which is raise a private militia. But in a way, it's laying out the headings of how to be an emperor. And so it becomes very important. Uh, and it's, it's amazing that it, we actually have it um, because of somebody who decided to inscribe it, re-inscribe it, both in Greek and in Latin, because Ankara was part of the Greek-speaking Roman world, um, in all those thousands of miles away. Absolutely. I'm going to go on to talk about the army now, who had, I guess you could say, quite a lot of power at particular times. Um, I mean, how did how did different emperors try and keep the armies loyal to them? And I think there were some sticky times where that didn't quite work so well. There were sticky times, but essentially, Augustus got the got the system for this because what he did, you know, I said nationalizing the army. What he obviously saw was that one of the problems in the in the power-sharing republic had been that generals were personally responsible for their own legions, and the legions were personally loyal to their generals. And what that did was, you know, that was a powder keg, because it meant that competing politicians had an army behind them. And so Augustus makes a fundamental change, and he says that, in a sense now, all armies are loyal to the emperor or to the state, right? Just kind of conflating those two. They are professional soldiers. They have a fixed term of service. And at the end of that fixed term of service, they um, get a pension. They basically get a pension pool. And that stops that kind of absolute loyalty between troops and general and makes the troops loyal to ideally, the emperor, as the state of Rome. Now, it is phenomenally expensive. And it's reckoned that that takes about half the total revenue of the Roman Empire to just to pay and reward with a pension, the army. And you can see that it's a trouble because it's clear at the end of Augustus's reign, um, some people are having their retirement and their pension deferred because Augustus, like 21st century politicians, know that if you want to save money on pension plans, you defer the retirement age. And that's clearly what was going on. But by and large, it works. I mean, there are, in the period that I look at, which is going up to the middle of the third century, there's um, 
there's a couple of devastating periods when um, civil war breaks out um, after the the death of the ruling emperor, both in um, 68-69 and in 193 BC, not BC, 193-80. And over a single year, basically, you find the throne being fought for by rival generals. And they get a lot of headline. They get a lot of headline press. That is is how um, Vespasian comes to power and it's how Septimius Severus comes to power. And it is a breakdown in the Augustan system. I think what's, for me, what's interesting is that it happens so rarely that there's only really two occasions where the legions are weaponized in fighting out succession. Succession is always terribly difficult. And actually, for the most part, the legions are kept out of it. Now, in some ways, of course, um, individual emperors are very aware of the importance of the army. So they tend, as well as giving them pay or whatever, they do at moments of transition, they tend to throw a bit of money at it. Um, But to to a certain extent, Augustus, you know, if he's looking back, could congratulate himself that he had got a system which kept, usually kept the army out of politics and kept the army usually loyal to the reigning emperor. So we've touched on that. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yes, already a little bit. Where the question lies, was there any democracy under an emperor? Because under the Republic, we knew there was, within reason, obviously. And my next question it doesn't it sounds really ridiculous that I'm asking this question because I know the answer but were there any senators still under the emperor yeah there's a basic principle that no ruler can rule alone um they certainly can't rule an empire alone and although there's quite a lot of standoff between the emperor and the senators who had in the Republic been the kind of main talking shop and political council, Augustus can't rule without those guys. So all the offices that they'd used to hold back in the Republic 
they were still there and they were still filled. They weren't exactly filled by free and frank elections. And um, most of the offices eventually were chosen by the senators themselves with a strong bit of influence from the emperor. But the Senate continues, but it's always overlooked by the emperor. And there is a kind of delicate standoff between the the one-man ruler and the rest of the elite. And a lot of the anecdotes about Roman power concern that. It's a great one. And the Tiberius, um, there's a trial going on in the Senate uh, when one senator naughtily says to Tiberius, could you please vote first in this trial? Because otherwise I might find that I have inadvertently voted the wrong way. Yeah, clever guy. So there is that. And quite a lot of the senators, although we have an image of them, rather like the the clever guy I've just quoted, as being pretty in opposition to the emperor, probably more, were getting on fine, actually. But I think that's not the only kind of way democracy happens, because that's very much the elite there. You say, well, is there a way in which the people at large can um, make their views known? Well, formally, no. But in practice, yes. And the emperors are are pretty vulnerable to popular protest and to big gatherings of the Roman people. And the Circus Maximus in particular, which might have held about 200,000 people, was the prime location where the people could demonstrate. And the Jewish historian Josephus thinking about the Circus Maximus and and its role in popular politics, says that when the people uh, demonstrated in the Circus Maximus, it was usually a good idea for the emperor to say yes. So he's he's quite vulnerable because he he has to give races. They have to be races. That's what emperors do. They're generous and they give shows, et cetera, et cetera. But then in... As the people come together, they also have some sort of power over the emperor. Um, and that happens several times and for all sorts of reasons. Um, you know, in, in one case, actually not in the circus, but in the theatre, Tiberius is challenged because he has removed a, a statue he likes, which used to stand outside a set of public baths and has taken it back to the palace and replaced it with a substitute and um the people demonstrate in the theater and say give us back our statue and he does so they are they're not immune from popular protest this is not however like regular elections (laughs) but the people are not powerless mary there's another I can't remember which one it is. There was an emperor who was rumoured, because you, you, you just don't say it's, it's true, he was rumoured to, when he'd enter the Senate, he would greet every single senator. And Augustus. every time, it was Augustus, and every time he'd leave, he'd greet every single senator. And he knew them by name and everything. And you said something would take him something like four or five hours. <laughs> at the absolute minimum, one and a half hours at each end and probably more. So it's either not... True, which is probably likely, but it's but I think a lot of these stories are very important even when they're not true. And he's one of the things he's doing is enacting 
what the Romans would have called civilitas, being one of the citizens. But at the same time, by enacting it, he's showing that he isn't. Not every senator does that. This is a display of Augustus. So, um, you know, it's an interesting, I like all these anecdotes. Um, they're really interesting for what lies under the surface of them. Definitely. And to briefly return to succession, um, could you tell us a little bit about how that actually worked in the in the system of emperors? And was there any formal way to choose the next emperor? Did it kind of vary? What was Very going messy. on? Very messy. And in a way, you could say that the one thing Augustus didn't get sorted was succession. Now, it was pr- partly by bad luck. He was married to Livia. Um, Livia had a son, Tiberius, by previous marriage, and Augustus had a daughter by a previous marriage, but they had no living children together. Now, that put a question mark over who was going to come next. And what you see is Augustus making a whole variety of boss shots at it. Unluckily, because you know, he marries off his daughter to a potential heir, et cetera, et cetera, to a series of them. But they all die. They all die prematurely. And in the end, he has, um, he falls back on Livia's son by her first marriage, Tiberius. Now, it is that partly give, giving rise to the rumours that Livia was... Um, uh, 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 had a hand in killing off all the others so that um, her son could come to the throne. We have no idea if that's true or not. But that sets the pattern for the future. And what he does is uh, he's, he's using, he's constantly using adoption as the way to mark out. That's he's constantly using adoption as the way to mark out um, successors. And that happens throughout the Roman Empire until you get to the second century AD when they actually see adoption as the main way, not only within the family, but outside the family of choosing a successor. But it is, it is significantly unlike our own pattern of succession, where we assume that the eldest child of the monarch traditionally the eldest son of the monarch, will succeed him. It wasn't actually until 100 years after Augustus, till Titus succeeded to Vespasian at the end of the first century AD, that a natural son succeeded a father on the throne. Others are adopted, their nephews, and all the rest, but not a natural son of their, of their predecessor. And succession is always the weak point in Rome. It, it's always where everything's up for grabs uh, and where and there aren't really any rules. I mean, it helped to be adopted and it helped to be related to the emperor, but it didn't, there was no kind of absolute fixed rule. For us, we have a fixed rule and you take what you get. Um, Romans had much more choice in a way, or the Roman emperor had much more choice, but... Um, it was jockeying all the time, all the time jockeying for power. So it's it's the, the big weak spot. 
My next question is a little bit simplistic. But there's so much more to it and you're going to explain that. And that is what did an, actually an emperor do? I mean, what was his role? What was the point of him? That sounds really awful, doesn't it? What was the point of him? No, it's, you know, that's the $64,000 question. And, you know, it's it's been rather obscured by the kind of stories that we tell, you know, about sex in the swimming pool, um, um, sadism, um, overeating, etc. Quite a lot of the emperor's time was taken up in paperwork. It was what somebody's termed government by correspondence, writing letters, writing back to provincial governors, writing um, replies to people who sent him their legal cases to judge or whatever. Now, some emperors must be more diligent than others. Um, you know, and just like in the modern monarchy, you know, there's George VI, who was a, you know, a, a decent family man, and uh, Edward VII, who was a libertine. Um, that must have been in part the case in Rome. But at the centre of the emperor's obligations was always getting the paperwork done and being accessible to the public. Now, how literally we should take that, it's a matter of, you know, of debate, but there's a great story told about Hadrian, which is that he's out in the countryside and an old woman comes up to him and says, um, uh, excuse me, emperor, you know, and he says, no, sorry, I haven't got time. And she says, if you've not got time for me, you've not got time to be emperor. So there is that sense that the emperor was responding to people's requests. Now, it probably took some, you know, quite a lot of bravery and cash to get a request sent from, you know, Iraq to the emperor, but still that was the notion. And the paperwork was the notion too. And I think we have to say, look, it may not have been, it was, could not have been the emperor himself who responded to all of this. But that was the image of him. And if he wasn't doing it, someone else was doing it on his behalf. And so, you know, one of the things I say in the book is that when emperors, um, when people imagine emperors, they imagine them in Rome, of course, they imagine them like us. You know, commanding troops or whatever. Also imagine him with a pen in his hand. You know, this is um, admin. So we've talked about the um, kind of daily life as an emperor when they're at work, but what kind of things were they doing in their spare time? Are there any kind of fun stories from your book about any hobbies any of the emperors had, what they did oh, to relax? They had very funny hobbies, you know. Augustus liked angling. <laughs> Some of them were very nice kind of painters. You know, it's very hard to imagine um, a Roman emperor as a kind of watercolorist, but some of them were. Um, Titus used to like to copy other people's handwriting. <laughs> it's a dangerous, you know, a would-be forger. We hear a little bit about that. You know, it's swimming, that kind of thing. Um, we do hear a little bit about that, but mostly we hear about them when they're sort of on the cusp between enjoying themselves, having time off, and still being on duty. You know, so 
that's when, you know, when they go to the shows, you know, they go to the Colosseum, they see the gladiators, they go to the races and they see the, the, the Circus Maximus and they go to the theatre. And that's, but that's, of course, always part official, part not official. And of course, you know, that's when they meet their people. So everybody's having a good time. We're having time off. It's leisure time. But also it never quite is leisure time for the emperor. So you, there's a clash between you know, these public pu- public displays of leisure and what they really do, you know, when they're absolutely on their own. And, you know, also, I suppose, is hunting. You know, but hunting has always been the sport of kings and it was the sport of kings in the Roman, in a Roman world. So, um, and there are some wonderful sculptures of the emperor as huntsman. So I'm going to try and going to get this right in my head. Right. So when Vespasian dies, he makes, or as he is dying, according to Suetonius, he makes a joke that he's feeling that he's becoming a god. Am I correct with that? Yes. Oh, blimey. I think I'm becoming a god. You know, and that, that was, was it. That was told as part of the kind of sense of um, he was a down to earth man making a joke to the very last, you know. But of course, what it's referring to is the um, the process by which some Roman emperors were officially voted by the Senate, and it was a role the Senate took here. They were voted to be gods. And um, many emperors and wives and occasionally children were voted in that way. And it was, we found it quite problematic. I mean, modern scholars come. Can this really, you know, how could somebody be a human being one minute and a god the next? You know, did they really take this seriously? Well, in part, yes. I mean, in part, making them divine was a way of affirming status. But there is a wonderful um, skit written by Nero's tutor Seneca um, on Claudius becoming a god. And it's called the almost impronounceable name, the apocolicintosis of Claudius. It's an unpronounceable name. Um, and Seneca is taking the piss out of this as much as we would. You know, he imagines um, this kind of old doddery Claudius going up to Mount Olympus. You know, the senators have voted him to be a god. Um, and he gets there and the gods don't want him. Right. So they say, go back down to, you know, you can go back down to Hades, mate. Right. And it's actually it's one of the few works of Roman literature that really do make you laugh, I think. Um, and it it is, I mean, it's revealing that people had all kinds of different views about this imperial deification. They weren't all just kind of dimly sitting and saying, oh, yes, right, Augustus is now God. Um, they, you know, they were pushing at the edges uh, of its oddity, too. There was one more thing I wanted to add before we we, we finish this, because n- not only emperors became gods, but also because he wasn't an emperor, nearly an emperor, was Caesar. He actually ends up with his own, is a priest and he has his own temple and, and everything else. He literally becomes a, a, a god, doesn't he? Yeah. But these, if you get properly deified, like Claudius, he actually, despite Seneca taking the piss, um, he was properly deified you get a temple you get priests you get little festivals now what's interesting is that occasionally emperors appear to push it too far so Nero for example tries to or does 
um, get the Senate to deify his dead baby daughter. Um, now, as far as we know, she never got a temple. Everybody thought, oh, fine, you know, just leave it at that. So um, there's clearly a, a division between the ones who really make it and the sort of what call the, van- the vanity gods like um, Nero's baby daughter. But there's a, a wonderful um, calendar of festivals from an army base um, in Dura Europas out, out east um, from the 220s, which um, records army, the, the, the legions on this base, um, still honouring Julius Caesar with a sacrifice. You know, almost 300 years since he was assassinated. So, um, so this is quite, this isn't nugatory. Some of it is, and it can be laughed at, but some of it is, turns out to be central. And just to finally follow on from this discussion of death and emperors as gods, we just wanted to ask Mary, what sort of um, material culture did emperors leave behind and maybe some of your favourite examples? Oh, it's, I think it's wonderful. One of the reasons I wanted to write a book about it was you still can visit some of this stuff. Um, you know, the Roman Republic has there's very little um, material culture left. There's some, but little of Roman emperors, you can still go and sit in a place where Nero had his dinner. You know, you can sit where Hadrian had his dinner. You can visit their palaces. You can go to Trajan's, you can, you can go to Hadrian's villa at Tivoli, you know, so-called villa. It's bigger than Pompeii originally, you know, vast palaces. But also, I think, um, one of the things that that is kind of worth remembering is that a surprising number of the ancient sculptures and works of art we see in museums now actually once belonged to the emperor. And Hadrian's Villa at Tivoli produced hundreds of sculptures. You know, they're now in the Vatican, they're in the British Museum. Um, and they don't come with um, a thing which saying, this belonged to Hadrian underneath. They come from, you know, found at Hadrian's Villa at Tivoli, but they were, you know, and the the works of art that the emperors commissioned or bought or displayed, some of the beautiful cameos, um, they might have been awful shits, but the cameos are gorgeous. Um, we can still see and touch and something, touch if we're lucky. <laughs> uh, and, you know, we can visit, you know, we can visit their villas. And I think that that, for me, makes them quite exciting that, you know, you can go around the Roman countryside um, and you can you can call in at Nero's palace at Antium or um, Claudius's villa on the coast of Baiae and see some of the sculpture that he had there. You know, so I think it's it's where you can really get up close and personal to where these guys lived. Now, there's all kinds of things that are problematic about it, like you know what you know what the rooms were for or whatever. But essentially, you can still go there, Mary. Can I just say it has been such a pleasure to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much, ladies. Thank you. You were one of our first ever guests when we first started History Hack. You, because of you, we gained so many new followers and we're so Thanks. grateful for that. Thank you. I hope you get some then. I, well, I'm really hoping that when you're one day bored and you have nothing to do, which is probably not very often, you want to give us a call and say, hey, 
fancy talking about something else for another 40 minutes and we will gladly have you on because first of all I love talking to you second of all I'm still going to thank you every day for saving me on my exam where I watched a Pompeii <laughs> show the, the night thank before you. thank you I'm delighted I'm um, delighted please remind our listeners the name of your book the name of my book is Emperor of Rome and it's published in the UK by Profile Books out on the 28th of September and about a month later in the US by Live Right. Amazing. We'll get that up into our bookshop as well. So you get a slice, we get a slice. And um, the place that's uh, named after a, r- a river in uh, South America won't get such a big slice. <laughs> but we will. <laughs> so, Mary, thank you so much for joining us thank again. You. Thanks and, very um, much. We will hopefully see you soon. Lovely. Thank you. Bye. Our incredible guests give us 45 minutes of their time to join us and talk about their work or their new book. This is just a small taster. As a result, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest books. You can support them and you can support us on History Hack. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep going and bring you more top-of-the-line guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or search for us in the shop section. Thank you so much for your continued support. We really appreciate our listeners and supporters. So make sure you get down to the bookshop and grab yourselves a new book. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 